Welcome to the Ministry Collaborative Podcast. A series of honest conversations about opportunities, challenges, and joy in ministry today. I'm Adam Mixon, content curator. I'm Adam Borneman, program director. I'm Jennifer Maxell, program curator. And I'm Mark Ramsey, executive director of the Ministry Collaborative. A project of the Macedonian Ministry Foundation, the Ministry Collaborative nurtures a national network of pastors and congregations. Committed to faithful, creative, and courageous engagement in their communities. Every day, we are inspired by ministry leaders from across the country who are exploring possibilities. Learning from broad perspectives. Taking risks. And who are eager to join candid discussions that generate disruptive creativity. This is Adam Borneman, and I have the pleasure of sitting down today with my friend and colleague of many years, Dr. Joe Scrivener. Joe is the Dean of Chapel and a professor of religion and theology at Stillman University in Tuscaloosa, and he is the pastor of Brown Memorial Presbyterian, which is on that very same campus. He's also the facilitator of our recently finished Tuscaloosa cohort of pastors over the last three years. And Joe, it's really good to be with you. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, one small thing, Stillman College. We're not at a university yet, but with your donation, <laughs> <laughs> we can be on our way. Joe, one of the things I've always really appreciated about you, something that has had a quite a positive impact in my life, is how you seem to weave together these callings as a pastor, a scholar, and a public theologian. Can you talk a little bit about your role in that and how that's emerged for you over these past several decades? I think I'm influenced by my father, my stepfather who raised me, my dad, Ralph White in Memphis, Tennessee. He was a pastor and something of a public advocate and activist, and I'm sure he influenced me in many ways. I think it all stems from a desire to understand and as an African-American Christian, uh, I want to understand theology and the Bible, but I also want to understand how those things work in our society. And growing up as a Christian in Memphis, Tennessee, the issue of race was always prevalent and the divide between black Christians and white Christians was always an issue. I was around some of the early Promise Keeper stuff in the 90s. And so I've had an interesting travel and path when it comes to black Christianity, white Christianity, American Christianity, studying the Bible, thinking about public policy, and just trying to think about how all of those things fit together and how we think about those things. Joe, one of the things I've heard you say so many times over the years is principles through particulars. Yes. Can you say a little bit about what you mean by that and where you get traction with that idea? Yeah, that developed when I was a teacher. I taught at Sanford. That's where you and I met. I was at Sanford from 2002 to 2013. I was a faculty member in the religion department there. And I taught intro courses on the Bible and upper level Old Testament courses. And when I talked to students about interpretation and the difficulties of biblical interpretation, I developed the idea of principles through particulars. So a passage, say, on slavery or on something with the culture in the ancient world may have a particular instruction, but there's a larger principle underlying that instruction. And so I argue we can often glean the principle from it, even if we don't apply it in the same particular way it was commanded in the ancient world. So if you take the creation story, the point I think from the creation stories the major point is that God is the creator, creation is good, all of those things. 
men and women have inherent dignity and so forth. Those are the larger principles. The particulars are the days, the dome of Genesis 1, et cetera, et cetera. And so some people think you can only have the principles with the particulars. And that's where we as Christians argue in our variations, you know, from liberal to conservative to moderate. So I just try to emphasize how you can distinguish those things. And then the argument, you know, the devil, quote unquote, is in the details in terms of how we agree or disagree on any particular passage or issue. Joe, the reason I ask about that is I see how this basic principle is expressed in the ways that you were so persuasive in your public theology. You were able to navigate lots of nuance and complex issues. Can you say a little bit about what you see as the predominant narratives that are at stake with the church and culture right now? Well, first, I appreciate your saying that. I often wonder who appreciates the nuance. (laughs) We're in an age when everybody wants sound bites and everyone wants their side reinforced. But a key thing is, of course, thinking about this issue of race and racism and what we talk more openly now about white supremacy in America in general and in American Christianity. So I think we need to think carefully about that and how that's played a role in our faith. And I think one way that that has played a role is how we think about crime and what we call black crime. And that's been an issue that's come up recently with protests about police brutality. And then some people bring up the proverbial question, well, what about black on black crime? And I realized that the issue of racism in policing and the issue of racism in how our histories have developed our neighborhoods are the same thing. And so what I want to argue is that the racism we see in police brutality is also the racism we see in how neighborhoods and communities have been developed or neglected and how they've been segregated. And so I want to argue that black-on-black crime is not the opposite of police brutality. If you think about racism creating the police brutality and the concentrated poverty in which black-on-black crime takes place. Uh, So that's a larger conversation, but I think we often don't think about those things connected in terms of a history of racism in America. Joe, my sense is that the dominant Christian culture, the predominantly white evangelical Christian culture, has a very hard time understanding systemic sin and power and things like that. Why do you think that is? What's the key there? I mean, just the uh, most obvious thing, I think it's to protect getting too deep in the analysis. I think it's to protect an area of examination that people want to avoid. I think it's much easier for people to talk about their feelings. I'm okay to have, you know, if you want to have dinner and we want to talk and a group of white friends and black friends get together and talk, that's nice. That's fine. (laughs) But that doesn't really address how we vote, how we think about society, how we think about public policy. And so if we are trying to address what we call systemic racism, police brutality, mass incarceration, educational disparities, health disparities, those things go beyond the kumbaya church moments we tend to want to share, right? Pulpit exchange, all of that's good in terms of developing relationships. But at some point, we have to talk about how we engage in public policy, whatever we think about parties and politics and how messy that is. I've got to the point, if you're not going to address public policy and how you advocate about policy, we really are not talking about addressing systemic racism and structural racism. 
And have you had experiences where you've seen folks really turn the corner on that? Uh, maybe a few conversations with people. I hit 50 last year, and I've been reading diligently about these things since my 20s. And it's taken a long time to re-educate myself about a lot of ideas that I've gotten from the larger culture about race and crime and public policy. And I think growing up in Memphis, I remember going to the Memphis bookstore, even a Barnes & Noble in Memphis, and the social science section would be overwhelmingly conservative. You know, I could find Thomas Sowell there, but I might not find Cornell West there or something like that. So I think people are thinking more systemically now. Uh, we seem to be having some kind of major change in how we think about these things. I hope so and pray so. But it's very, very difficult uh, in how we think about these things. You said that you think we might be experiencing a significant change right now. What do you think that change is? Well, it does seem that people are more willing to talk about white supremacy, systemic racism. Maybe this is generational, where younger people are forcing us to grapple with these things. But also, I've seen some Christian leaders talk about these things more openly than some of them have in the past. And so perhaps with the pandemic and then the horror of George Floyd's murder, by the police in Minneapolis. It seems that those things have hit a particular chord, maybe the way Emmett Till's death did for some, or the Rodney King beating did for some. It seems that those things have triggered or catalyzed a larger movement beyond what we would have imagined or expected. What else do you think that the pandemic is exposing right now in the life of the church? It's exposing these uh, health disparities, for instance. Um, we know that those people who are infected more and dying more are what we call frontline workers. And those people are disproportionately lower income. They're disproportionately black and brown. And so it's helping us as Christians in the church see how our society is structured and how uh, certain things favor those with more income. And we know this sort of inherently, but it's showing that people who have to get out and work every day for UPS or for the Postal Service, FedEx or what have you, or in restaurants and delivery and all of these things, these people are more at risk. They're just being infected and unfortunately killed by this virus at a much higher rate. And uh, it's forcing us to examine things like universal health care, affordable health care, employer-based health care. People are unemployed during a pandemic, so how do they get health care if their health care is dependent on their job? So how do we re-examine these discussions we've had now for 30 years about universal health care, these kinds of things? Joe, my experience with the pandemic and the protests in the recent months has been that I'm finding myself less and less tolerant of those people in places that want to ignore the systemic issues. They seem so plain and self-evident at this point. Do you think that my experience with that is common? Do you think that that's widely shared across the life of the church or or not? In terms of your frustration with those who don't want to engage those discussions? Yes. I, I've started to sense less tolerance for getting engaged in those discussions that don't admit the public policy issues and things like that. I think so. And, you know, I've been amazed as I reflect on the political work that pro-life rhetoric has done in conservative evangelicalism. Mm -hmm. It has become the ace of spades that many white evangelicals use for how they think about public policy. And it is, in my judgment, a complete snow job. 
it has been a snow job for 30 years, maybe 40 years, and since the 70s, that has been used to, to use Malcolm X's phrases, hoodwink, bamboozle, lead astray, run amok, a group of evangelicals for almost half a century. And, you know, some people think, okay, I have to have this pro-life position, therefore I can't think about mass incarceration, I can't think about universal health care, all of these things that would reduce abortions and abortion options for women if you provided them better health care, better education, better access to contraceptives and so forth. But there's been this whole line of thought around pro-life positions that just shuts down people's brain about everything else. If some people are willing to undo how they think about these things, they need to rethink their pro-life positions, I must say. What is the first step for that rethinking process? Well, <laughs> is it, in other words, is it a theological step? Is it a public policy step or maybe some combination? I think it's addressing, are you really interested in reducing the number of abortions? Or are you just interested in the Supreme Court outlawing or undoing Roe versus Wade? Are you interested in reducing abortions on the ground in whatever city you live in? If you're interested in that, then you should be interested in health care, services for women and children, education, contraceptive availability. But if you're just interested in this goalposts of Supreme Court decision, without thinking about the fact, even if the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, he would send it back to the states. And then we'd have separation in our states. And someone made the comment, then women would go from conservative states to liberal states to have uh, this procedure. So it's just not a thought out position, but it's this goalpost, Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade. But it does, it's not really addressing where people live on the ground. Now, I know there's some true believers who are engaging in real hard work on the ground. They're adopting, they're loving, they're taking people in. I know that work is out there. I don't deny it. I appreciate it. But it's disconnected with how people think about public policy. Mm-hmm. Joe, what do you think is the experience of most pastors right now, and where do you think that's headed uh, over the course of the pandemic and beyond? Well, I'm most interested and concerned about pastors who serve in churches that may be politically mixed and how they may be afraid to address issues depending on their polity, depending on the structure. Do they feel at risk if they're in a more congregational setting? Baptist or even Presbyterian church where there's some powerful elders, you know, who can influence things. I pray that they can figure out how to be appropriately courageous and appropriately prophetic in light of the congregation and the polity in which they uh, serve. What are you most hopeful about right now? I guess, well, (laughs) I hope that November gives us a different outcome. I must say, I do find that to be nearly (laughs) apocalyptic in terms of who the resident is in the White House. And I pray that, you know, we don't fall off a cliff between now and January. I pray for major police reform, and I pray for uh, more work on universal health care. To me, those are some major issues. But the loss of decency, the narcissism that we have at the top of our government is, in my judgment, undeniable. And people like George Will are saying as much. So it's not even a partisan issue anymore. This is obvious for any honest observer. We're in dire straits as a nation and with our leadership. What's keeping you going? I guess the calling to serve and feeling like I want to understand better and I want to help people understand better. And then I want to express the love of Christ in fellowship and 
in service. Uh, so I guess the calling to be a part, participate in God's mission. Uh, I think that's happening, and I'm glad to be a part of it. As the old song says, I'm glad to be in that number and glad to participate in what I believe God is doing. So that's that's a privilege. It, it gets tough sometimes, but that is a privilege. And uh, what did Paul say? We have this treasure in clay jars. And so I'm a broken down clay jar, but I'm glad for God to shine a little glory through my cracks. So I just keep trying to press on and do what I believe God has called me to do. Joe, are there any resources that you'd like to recommend for our listeners? Well, there are a hundred books. I guess one book would be Shaniqua Walker Barnes's book, I Bring the Voices of My People. It's a good book on racial reconciliation. The other book would be The Condemnation of Blackness with the latest preface from Khalil Gibran Muhammad. Uh, it's a book about how crime data and racism have been woven together since the 1890s. Mm. And it really helps you see past the way people cite stats about crime and race. So that's a very, very important book, The Condemnation of Blackness by Khalil Gibran Muhammad. Joe, thanks so much for your time today and for the encouragement that you continue to be to so many of us in your role as a pastor, professor, and public theologian. Thank you. Glad to share this time, and I'm grateful for our friendship and for your work there with Macedonian Ministry. Thank you for listening to the Ministry Collaborative Podcast. Our producer is Marthame Sanders. To find out more about us and our work of cultivating leadership that makes a difference in congregations and communities, visit our website at www.ministrycollaborative.org.